0: All right, good morning. How are y'all? Good? Good. Good morning. I want to go back just for a minute here, as I like to usually do, is to help us not just move past what we just sang to what we're about to do. Let me see if I have control. Do I have control of this, Katie? I want to go back to the chorus we just sang. I'm not very, there we go. That is a, a really good prayer to pray before we hear a sermon from God's Word. Um, it struck me last week, preparing to preach in La Mirada. But um, that our, our, it's a good prayer for you to pray as you're about to listen to a sermon. It's a kind of prayer that I pray um, as I'm preparing to preach. And it's increasingly the way I want to think when I'm thinking about how do we apply the text to our life? How does practical application come into the sermon? Because I see it less as my responsibility to give you all four steps at um, acting reverently this next week or eight humble things you could do for your spouse or for some a coworker as much as my prayer is that God would stir awe in your heart, that reverence would grow for God in your heart. Uh, that humility before God would grow in your heart. Because when that happens, um, that turns into a thousand practical applications in your week to come as you meet life as a person whose God's spirit has, has stirred up awe and reverence and humility in and adoration in. And notice in this chorus how we expect that that happens. Um, It's that middle line, show us your captivating beauty. How do we get pulled every week out of just formal duty and motions um, into awe and reverence and humbly bowing as a posture of our life? God shows us his captivating beauty. In one way or another, every time we go to the word on a Sunday morning, that's the goal. We see his beauty, see the beauty of God's character as our father. We see the beauty of his son as our redeemer. And King, we see the beauty of His plan of bringing us out of sin into His grace in which we stand. And that I love the word captivating beauty. That's beauty that actually gets a hold of us in a way and takes us somewhere. So that's our prayer this morning is that in these few verses in 2 Peter, God would show us His captivating beauty. If you are a Christian, God has already captivated you with his beauty, as we're gonna see, uh, and he's not done doing that. So turn to chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter one. If you would, it's right near the end of your Bible. If you go back to Revelation and just start flipping back, don't flip fast, because you're gonna get there soon. Second Peter, bless you. Uh, as you're turning there, too, I'll just remind you, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to gift one to you. We have, uh, uh, or give one, that's a simpler way of putting it. We have plenty of them out in the hallway our ushers could give you, so uh, you don't need to put your hand up right now. I don't want to put you on the spot. Oh, but go ahead. They're right out there. Our ushers, Braden, he's coming for you. Here he comes. Justin's going to make sure that Braden's doing his job, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Justin. But we'd love for you to be able to look at the the, the verses that we're looking at uh, and, and explaining and and meditating on 2 Peter chapter one. Um, I don't normally draw much attention to a sermon title. Usually I just go with something obvious from our text. But this week, uh, two weeks ago, as I was studying this, the the name of this play, The Importance of Being Earnest came to mind. And and I wanna put this out right at the beginning. Never read it. I've actually never seen it or the movie version. So don't come up and ask me about the play and talk to me about the play afterward. I don't wanna talk about the play. I just (laughs) thought of the title of the play because this is what... Peter sees as very important here in his opening chapter is being earnest. Um, There's something that Peter wants us to pursue as he starts this letter. It's the reason he wrote this letter. And he doesn't want us to just pursue it occasionally. He doesn't want us to pursue it on weekends and religious holidays or when it's convenient uh, or when it doesn't make our lives uncomfortable uh, or worse. It's something he wants us to pursue with our whole heart, not half-heartedly or absent-mindedly or casually um, when we think about it. He keeps using this word earnest uh, or diligent. And in fact, as we get to verses 12 through 15, Peter is gonna sort of back up for a minute and remind us that he's writing this letter because he is earnest that we be earnest. In English here, you don't see the same words show up three times, but it's there. Verse five in Gerald's passage from last week, look at when it says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with these various qualities. Make every effort literally means bring all your earnestness to bear on making sure your faith is not just words and a profession, but something that's fruitful, right? Be earnest about that pursuit. Then in verse 10, which is where we're going to pick up today, again, he says, be all the more diligent, same word, be earnest. And then look at verse 15 when he says, you know why I'm writing this letter? Is so that um, I'm making every effort so that after I depart, you can recall these things at any time. Again, I will make every effort. Literally, I will be earnest in, re- in reminding you of these things. So Peter wants us to be earnest and he's earnest about us being earnest. And so we're gonna think about earnestness this morning, two earnest pursuits. All right, so I got 10 through 15, verses 10 through 15 10 and 11 really uh, finish where Gerald started us last week in, in verses five through nine of what Peter's urging us to do earnestly. And all of that is anchored in what Randy preached on two weeks ago, verses three and four, who we are in Christ and all that we've been given through Christ. So there's a thread that starts in three all the way through so far. And so verses 10 and 11, he's going to sort of finish that thought and, and that earnest pursuit. And then verses 12 through 15, by way of modeling for us, he's going to show us uh, something else that I think we ought to be earnest uh, for just like Peter is. So two earnest pursuits. One he calls us to, the other one he's modeling for us here in these last three verses. And so I want to back up and start reading verse three, and get to 11. We'll stop, tackle that first earnest pursuit, and then we'll, we'll read the last four verses uh, near the end. So let me pray, and then we'll read and dive in. Lord, like we just sang, This requires. We it requires eyes. I think of Paul praying that uh, you would open the eyes of our heart to behold. Um, to understand the love of Christ, the breadth and height and length and width, and to know the surpassing love for Christ, of Christ for us and all that comes with that. So we need eyes this morning. That right there is the, the beauty that's going to captivate us and, and stir the sort of earnestness that you want, God, that's not pasted on or formal duty. Um, uh, but um, born of your spirit, born of this, your seed now in us. So God, help us here to have uh, uh, minds that understand these things, but also that our hearts would then respond appropriately as each of us need. Lord, you know our hearts and we pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read. Second Peter 1, 3 through 11. His divine power, that is our God and Jesus our Lord, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious, very great promises. Here's why. So that through them, through these promises, you... May become partakers of the divine nature, that you may increasingly grow back into the image of God that you were created to reflect that sin has marred, that you would become partakers of the divine nature. Let's keep reading having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So God has done something by his divine power and through his spirit so that the sinful desire that was part of the corruption in this world that owned you, that you were in bondage to, something's changed there that has set you free so that now you through these promises can become partakers of his nature. Let's keep going, verse five. So for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue And virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, if you don't see these in your life, Peter is saying, Um, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. All right, new territory today. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, let's stop. First earnest pursuit that he calls us to here in verse 10 earnestly confirm your calling and election. Confirm your calling and election. It's a phrase we've got to understand. Let's start with your calling and election. What Peter has in mind when he, he, he's thinking of your calling and election is this, your standing as a born again child of God. That's what he wants you to confirm. I believe that the Bible teaches that God, by his free and sovereign decision, that is his election, his sovereign grace, chooses and then calls people to be saved. And he does that by drawing them by his grace, captivating them with his beauty and bringing them into salvation. That God draws us. I think that's the way uh, Peter means calling here. I don't think he's meaning calling the way sometimes the Bible means calling, the gospel invitation. Like when Peter at Pentecost or Paul would go into cities and, and exp- explain the gospel and say, repent and believe and would call people to be saved. Peter here means something more specific than this, not just the invitation, but I think this drawing of God out of darkness into light. I think he has in mind the way Jesus talked when he said this, In John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. That doesn't happen, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me gets involved and draws him. That word draws him is the same word that's used for things like this. When Peter had that rough night of not catching any fish and Jesus comes in the morning, he says, put your nets out one more time. And they get loaded up and it's so heavy that they can't get them into shore. So Peter goes out and it says, and they hauled the net ashore full of fish. That's this word. They drew the net of fish into the shore. It's the same word in Acts a couple of times when Paul gets in big trouble with Silas and Philippi and crowds get really angry because this, this girl has trusted in Christ and they've lost their business. And it says, they hauled them into the marketplace before the rulers, they drug them in. And later Acts 21, they're in Jerusalem. Paul gets in trouble and they drag him out of the temple. This is not just a mere invitation, but an act of God's grace to draw someone out of death into life. I think the calling Peter has in mind is like what happened to Lydia in Acts 16. There's an example of, um, there's this woman as Paul is preaching outside of Philippi and a crowd gathers and Lydia is one woman in the crowd. And it says, Acts 6, 14. Put that over here. There. Oh. It says, and the Lord, as Paul is speaking, opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So you see both calling. Paul is calling, but the Lord is calling, opens her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You see that? I think this is what Peter has in mind by your calling and election. He talked about it back in 1 Peter 1 even. He talked to the church like this. Christians, Christians, you're a chosen race. You've been chosen by God. Not because there's something wonderful in you that only he could see, but no one else could see. And so he picked you. But no, Because he will show mercy upon whom he will show mercy. You're a chosen race and you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Why is he so excellent? Because he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chosen and called. This is what Peter has in mind here, I think when he says, then be diligent to confirm your calling and election. If he means calling just the invitation that would make no sense, be diligent to confirm that you were invited. That doesn't make sense, right? If you say, well, I've I've heard the gospel, whether you rejected it or you received it, I've heard it. I've been invited, but Peter's saying, no, 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 I want you to confirm that you've been called, that God has brought about this miracle of new birth, that God has pulled you out of darkness, given you a new heart, put his spirit in you and his seed now abides in you. Peter says, I want you to be diligent to confirm that that's happened. I want you to know that that's happened. I want it to be visible. He says, I want you to confirm it or make it sure or certain. How do we do that? Look what he says here in verse 10 again. Be diligent to confirm your calling in election for if you practice these qualities, stop. What he's been talking about since chapter five is the thing he, which Peter is saying bears witness that this has happened in the heart. What attests or confirms that that has happened in your heart and your life, it's the practice of these qualities. It's the outward fruit of your life. It's the pursuit of, of godliness and holiness, or like verse 4 says, that the trajectory of your life, the desire of your life, is that I might become a partaker of the nature of my heavenly Father who called me. That is what confirms your calling an election. In other words, fruitless knowledge. You could have all the knowledge in the world of Jesus and the gospel and, and the Bible and God and his character, just like the demons do and even believe. But if it's fruitless, if your life shows no evidence, that should raise the question, Peter would say, of whether there's saving faith here. Or like a couple of weeks ago, I heard Rob Lister say, it's just a notional faith. It's just a, a list of things that you would agree with and say, yes, those things are true fruitless knowledge should raise a question. You shouldn't claim to trust Jesus and then live a life that indicates that he doesn't matter to you, I think Peter would say. On the other hand, I think he would say, he is saying, if the pursuit of your life is to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord Jesus, that your desire is to grow by degrees, even as that ebbs and flows, even if some days it's hard to see externally, but the drive is in the heart, these things are evident and are increasing. You're moving that direction. Um, that should be evidence that you are a child of God, obedient children of God. So, w- w- Gerald was very clear last week that our salvation is not by, fa- or by works. It is by faith, that is true. And I hope you heard Gerald say that. But it is salvation with works, right? That's what Peter's saying, is, is fruitless knowledge and profession should cause you to question It shouldn't confirm your calling an election or a pastor, Dave Helm, I like. He said, true faith sweats. True faith sweats, energetically seeks to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. True faith wants to get more of Jesus in the soul, be captivated by more of the beauty and glory of God so that what he saved me to happens. Let me give an example of that from the way Paul 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, he's right into this Christian church in Thessalonica that he was part of planting. Now he's away and he's heard some reports about them. And listen to this bold thing he says at the beginning of his letter. He says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you. Think about that. That's a bold thing to say, right? We know God's chosen you. Well, you're not Paul's not God. Paul doesn't know the mind of God. And Paul can't see the inward heart of these Christians. He can't see their faith in that way. But he says, we know, we're confident, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you because, and if you keep reading, he goes on to say, here's how we know, things like this first of all, when we came and we shared the gospel with you, even though it was against the backdrop of affliction and in a context within which to profess Christ and identify yourself with Christ might be dangerous, nevertheless, you received this message with the joy of the spirit. He says that attested to something real happened there. That's something spirit wrought that happened. And he goes on, he says, since we've been gone, we get reports about you Thessalonians, that you are bold in your witness. Other churches in the surrounding areas tell us this. And they talk about how you in that church turned from idols to serve a living, the, the living true God. Your faith is seen, right? They can see by your life that you are not living for those idols anymore, but for the, the one living true God. Their lives attested to their calling and election. And so it should be with us. It should be with us. I should earnestly desire to imitate my father as an obedient child. There should be a desire in my heart that I act on, even if with fits and starts and with struggle, even if it's gradual and difficult. We should earnestly wanna kill sin. We shouldn't be satisfied like Paul would say, well, just sin all the more that grace might abound. He would say, no, are you kidding me? When you were baptized, you were baptized, you died to sin, and you've been raised to new life with Christ. No way. We should earnestly desire to be increasingly free of the grip of sin in our heart because Christ died to to set us free from it. I'm going to ask is earnest the word you would use to describe your pursuit of these things? That's a hard question. I've been asking myself this question the last two weeks, thinking about this passage and standing in front of you. It's sobering. One of the things this made me aware of is my life does not lack earnestness, but often things that I'm really earnest about and I think a lot about and I, it occupies a lot of my mental space during the day and I'm scheming about and keeping me up at night or working really hard at, or I can do that for a lot of other things that by contrast are so insignificant compared to this pursuit right? Can you relate to that? Being really earnest about other things. And yet we, we hear this, and would we use that same word to describe this? We can be earnest about hobbies, getting better and get, get, getting the newest stuff to pursue our hobby or home improvement projects. I didn't say that because you guys are in here, Howells. I know we need to be earnest about our home improvement projects, right? But, but we can get caught up and consumed with that sort of stuff, right? Our, our, whatever our projects are. Um, or with keeping up with politics right now and reading every last thing and in the polls. And we can we can earnestly want to know, right? We can be earnest about physical fitness and eating right and CrossFit and boot camp and 21-day and goals and all that stuff's good. But I just want to say we can be so earnest and then we come here and say, Would I use that same word to describe my pursuit of these things? I don't often. Peter knows that. That's why he's writing this. So that's one thing to be encouraged by, Christian, right? He knows, that's why he says, I'm gonna keep reminding you, keep reminding you that that's our tendency. That's our tendency to coast and to drift again. And he wants to stir us up again, right? So he understands it but he wants us to call us to, to earnestness. And he does two things in these verses, I think, to try to stir up earnestness again. If our zeal for pursuing God and, and, and godliness in our life is like a, a coal that ideally is burning with flame and it kind of c- constantly is going down like this back to coal and he wants to fan it back into flame. Here's two things he's doing in here to try to do that, to, to, to stir it up back into flame. Number one, he says, this pursuit is how you keep the faith. Pursuing godliness the way he's prescribing here, not as fake fruit, not as a veneer of obedience, but pursuing it like this. Number one, this is how you keep the faith. He says, verse 10 if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I think that's a word of assurance and a word of motivation. What I mean by that is, on one hand, it's a word of assurance. If these qualities are yours, they're increasing, you see evidence that you're born of God, then in that knowledge that you are born of God, you go to the promises of God where he says, I will keep you, I will not forsake you. Like in 1 Peter 1, not only is a reward being kept for you, I am guarding your faith to receive that reward and be assured but I think the sentence is also a word of motivation. In other words, do you want to never fall from faith, fall away from God, throw in the towel and, and, and say, and abandon Christ? Practice these qualities, pursue these things. I don't know if you remember at the end of Paul's life when he wrote his version of 2 Peter. So this is Peter's last thing he wrote. He knows he's about to die and he writes this. Well, Paul's letter like that was 2 Timothy. And he writes it to Timothy, knowing the Lord has not given him much longer. And near the end of his life, Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. In other words, I haven't fallen from faith. I haven't fallen away, praise God. And Peter is being very emphatic. He says here, if you practice these qualities, you will know not ever fall. I think he means fall from faith. I don't think he means you will never stumble. You'll never sin we can all, we're nodding our heads going, yeah, that can't be right because I know the week I just lived, right? He says, no, you will never fall. You'll never fall away. You will not fail um, to come to the end of your life. But like Paul, be able to say, I, I finished the race, I kept the faith. And the pursuit of these things is part of God's built-in means for our faith to persevere. Think about this a minute. I think there's a reciprocal relationship between our faith and then the fruit of our faith. It starts with faith. Right, That's what Peter's been saying here. It starts with, um, God's granted to us all things by his divine power to, to pertain to life and godliness. And he's granted us precious promises so that through them. And so it starts with a word from God and help from God and an invitation from God that we respond to by faith and fruit grows. But I also think then as we pursue growing this way by faith, it actually strengthens what faith we have and our faith continues to grow as we take God at his word. He proves himself faithful and our faith is increased. And the cycle starts again. It's a day by day by day process. Um, You know, to say God's given you everything you need for life and godliness doesn't mean that when you became a Christian, he packed your whole toolbox with everything you need and now that's on you. I think there's a very day-by-day, moment-by-moment way that we, through promises by his power, take him at his word and live by faith and walk by faith. It made me think of the hymn. I, I grew up singing. I can't remember the last time we sang it at Grace. We should. Um, but, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." Anybody know that hymn? Okay. The chorus says this line, "'Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, "'how I've proved him o'er and o'er, over and over." And when I was growing up, I used to think that was kind of an arrogant thing to say to Jesus, right? How I've proved Jesus over and over. I thought that sounds, I've proved Jesus over and over, but that's not what it means, right? It actually means how Jesus has proven himself faithful to me over and over. Well, how have I proven him faithful? Well, that's back up. This is how the hymn starts. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word." And just to rest upon his promise, that starts with his word, his promise, his help, just to know thus saith the Lord. So that's where it starts. And when I take Jesus at his word and I live according to his promise, I rest in something he has assured me of or I obey his good commands, which is a form of um, resting in a promise. You ever think about that obeying good commands of Jesus is a form of trusting a promise? of God. If if Jesus sets a boundary, that is him promising you that here is where true life is found. It's not found out there. It's found here. So his commands are promises. And so to rest on his promise, take him at his word in obedience or trust. And then we do that and Jesus proves himself faithful. He meets us in temptation and helps us Uh, overcome it or uh, resist it and walk faithfully. And walking faithfully is good to us and brings us joy. He proves that his commands are good to walk in. Or he makes promises, future promises to us and says, if you cast your cares on me because I care for you, the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So you do it. You trust him and you cast your cares on him because you're worried and he gives you peace, a sense of trust in your heart, and he's on his throne, and he's got this. In that process, your, your faith is strengthened. Does that make sense? It's reciprocal, so that as other cares and anxieties come, maybe it's a little bit easier or, or quicker for you to cast those on because he's proven himself faithful over and over. And so that's why we, then you keep coming back and singing the chorus. How I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. If you practice these things, you will never fall. God is built into the process of seeking to grow that when we do that properly by faith, looking to God as the one who who brings that work about in us, that that process actually strengthens the very faith by which we continue to grow. So that should encourage us this morning. God has given us all things that pertain to this. So first of all, earnestly pursue it because this is how you will keep the faith. Secondly, and it's connected, but he says it in another way in verse 11. This process is also the path to the glorious finish line. I've been thinking a lot. Of Philippians 3, Paul writes, and, and has been in my mind a lot in this passage because he, he uses calling language again. And Paul in Philippians 3 is talking about how what he wants more than anything is to experience the resurrection life and to attain by any means possible the resurrection from the dead. And he doesn't just mean in the end that God will resurrect my body and give me an imperishable body forever, but he sees the whole Christian life from the time we trust Christ and we're baptized as a resurrection life, of a life that's coming out of death into life. And he says things like this, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call Of God. That our calling is an upward calling. It's an upward calling not only toward godliness, but to a finish line one day to see Jesus and to hear words like this. Let's read verse 11. He says, In this way, as you pursue God in this way and pursue growing in Him in this way, there will be richly provided for you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying this is the path to a rich welcome personally from Jesus one day. I wanna be clear again. Uh, Pursuing holiness is not the price of your admission into this eternal kingdom of Jesus, but it is the proof of your purchase. It's the evidence. It's what confirms that you've been purchased and you're his possession and he's called you out. Only one person had deep enough pockets to pay the price of admission for any one of us into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. And that was Jesus. And he did it once for all. First Peter three eighteen, Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's us, to bring us to God. So that's our admission into this kingdom. But the means by which we persevere and one day see that day and hear our Lord Jesus's voice and his rich welcome into his eternal kingdom. This is the path to that. As we've been in First and 2 Peter, it's made me think a lot back into the gospels and think, when was Jesus teaching Peter and the apostles these things, right? Where do we hear Jesus saying these things that Peter now gets it and he's urging upon us? And Matthew 25 has to be one of the places that Peter is thinking about when he talks like this in verse 11, that in this way, there's gonna be a rich Entrance provided for you into his eternal kingdom. Listen to this, you don't have to turn there or you can follow along. Matthew 25, Jesus is preaching to crowds with his disciples and he's talking about the day he comes in in his glory. And and he gives sort of a, a metaphor to describe what that day is gonna be. And he says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another like a shepherd separates, uh, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right. I know some of you are sheep in this room. Hopefully all of you are sheep in this room, but I'm gonna point over here for the purpose of illustration. And he's gonna turn to the sheep on his right and he's gonna say, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for, me, for you from the foundation of the world. And then he's gonna say, why? He's gonna say, why this rich welcome? And he says this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. We might expect Jesus to turn and say, because I paid your ransom, which is true. But here that when he's picturing this rich welcome, he points to simple acts of love and compassion that look like God the father and Jesus the son done, not because Jesus is watching to earn points, but simply because they were his, God's sheep. We even know that, that this is, these are sincere acts because the sheep in this scenario say, Jesus, when did we do those things? When, when did I feed you? I didn't even know you were hungry. When did I visit you? When, when did I visit you in prison? And he says, well, no, to the extent that you did these things, you did them to me. He see, these sincere acts that look like heavenly father, this attests to the fact you're my sheep. You are those blessed by my father. And then he's gonna say verbally, Jesus, to his sheep, come in. That phrase, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, just hit me. Has anyone prepared anything for you in your life as great as a kingdom? See, <laughs> someone has prepared, Jesus has prepared a kingdom for you. That's not just a mansion, a kingdom has mountains and rivers and sky and beauty and glory and other people. It's a place. In Second Peter 3, it's gonna say, A new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells has been prepared for you. And one day Jesus is gonna verbally invite you into it. Any of you ever seen this show Extreme Home Makeover? Last week, 8 a.m. service at La Mirada, everyone just looked at me blank, left me feeling like I'm the only person who ever watches reality TV. But then 9.30 and 11.15 service, they were with me. They'd Sorry, have you seen the show? Okay, is it still on? I don't know if it's still on. But they would take a family each episode that their community would have nominated that was in great need, and their home was... inadequate for their needs and they couldn't do anything about it. And they would whisk them away to some place for a month or however long and designers would come in with these construction crews and all the money they needed to get it done on time. And they would just like make these houses amazing, add on rooms and space and upper floors and kitchen and backyard and everything to, for the kids to grow. And they would bring the family back at the close of every episode, right? And they'd park a giant bus in front of the house and all the neighborhood would be out and they'd bring them up blindfolded and they sit them in front of the bus where they couldn't see the house yet. And the hosts uh, on the show were standing there with this huge smile on their face because they couldn't wait to see the look on this family's face when they finally saw it. That's why I had to stop watching the show. I'm a wreck at this point of every show. But they would, what would they say at the end of every every episode? You've seen it. Let's say it. All right, they'd yell. They were more energetic than you, but they would say, move that bus! And the bus would pull out and the family would just come unglued. I mean, you'd see like dads who were in the military who have come home just weeping. And then the host would grab the family and take them room by room through the house and show the kids their bed and their backyard and their kitchen and they'd show them everything and their jaws would drop. And the host would be elated. When Jesus says, one day I'm gonna say, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. He's saying, one day I'm gonna say move that bus in a much bigger sense. And behind the bus isn't just a kingdom. Jesus is behind the bus. Look at verse 11. It's the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If the idea of an amazing kingdom where nothing ever breaks and wears out or gets sick uh, is awesome to you, whether or not Jesus would be there, you might wanna question whether or not you really have trusted in Jesus. Because what's gonna make that kingdom great is that kingdom's king. Jesus will reign there forever. Every enemy gone. And we will be with him. Now, I want you to try to imagine because Jesus still has a face. He's not spirit again, you know, right? He will always be God, man forever. So when Jesus says that, he has a face. You can see the look on his face when he says to you, inherit the kingdom. Can you imagine the smile? Part of the joy that was set before Jesus when he endured the cross was one day, because of what he'd done, glorifying the Father, that he would get to say those words. (laughs) I'm convinced, him getting to say those words, Jesus is gonna be smiling, and Peter wants us to imagine it and see it. Why? Because that will stir earnestness because we don't lose sight of of where this is headed, our upward call. So that's the first earnest pursuit here. That's why he wants us to grow. That's what he saved us for. By degree is to be restored back into the image of our father, to know the joy of increasingly being free from sin. And one day that being confirmed forever with him. And that's why there's this second pursuit, verses 12 through 15. That is why Peter is so earnest that as he's facing martyrdom, he's, he's not just thinking about himself and worrying, he's writing one last letter. Verses 12 through 15, he models this second thing to us that we should be earnest for. Verse 12, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, although you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort, I will be earnest so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He wants us to be earnest to to refresh one another's gospel memory, to refresh one another's gospel memory two phrases in here I just want us to think about. And they're both in verse 13. He says, I'm writing this letter to stir you up. I want to stir this uh, earnestness up in you. That's one of these strong visual words. It's not a gentle word. It's a rousing word. You know, when I first read this, I thought, oh, it's probably the same word over in Hebrews where it says, let's stir one another up to love and good deeds. No, it's a different word. It's a word that only six times in the New Testament. six. Four of those times are all describing the same scene in the gospels. It's when Jesus and the disciples are out on the boat and the storm hits and Jesus is sleeping in the back. It's the word in Luke eight when it says, and they went and they woke him saying, master, master, we're perishing. That's the word. They went and they, they wanted to make sure Jesus was awake. <laughs> they stirred him and it says, and he awoke. So this is a violent waking up. Wake up, we're about to die. Peter wants to rouse us from spiritual cruise control and just coasting. He wants us to be earnest. A couple of weeks ago, I finally got around to updating my iPhone's operating system. Every day, the thing would pop up to say, do you want to update now? And of course, because I was a procrastinator, I'd say tomorrow. tomorrow. So I finally updated it. And one of my favorite new features on the new operating system is it has all these new wake-up sounds that you can set for this bedtime mode on your phone, I don't know if you checked that out or listened to some of them, but they're wonderful because unlike the ones I used to have that just sort of go beep, 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 they're all, they start from silence and they just slowly creep in and creep in over like two minutes to build. I wanna play you mine because it's really beautiful. Hold on a second, it's, it's really easy. Hold on a minute. All right, password, I don't want people hacking my phone. Oh, I might not be able to play this if I failed the third time. There it is. OK. Listen, listen to this Here it comes Is that nice? To be up like that What I've noticed, though, here's the problem. So far, I've had it for two weeks. Um, waking up is harder. Bessie can attest to this because my phone's sitting by my bed, plugged in. The first time my conscious registers this, slowly, I just grab that thing, hit snooze. It doesn't get me out of sleep. So I just hold my phone for nine minutes in my my hand in bed until it starts going again. Boom, hit that thing. I can hit that thing for 45 minutes. No problem. It doesn't actually rouse me. And Peter here is saying, I want to stir you up. He's going more with the beep, beep, beep method. I want you to recall at any time these things. I'm gonna remind you and remind you and remind you until I'm gone. And I'm gonna write it down so after I'm gone, you can keep reading it and keep being reminded. And what is it that he's gonna do? Uh, By way of reminder, he's gonna remind us, verse 12, of these qualities and the truth that you know and are established in. Not just the things to be pursuing, but the truth that those things are grounded in I'm gonna remind you and remind you and remind you. I think he has all of what he's been talking about in 2 Peter 1 so far. It's the gospel that starts with your faith is equal with the apostles because it's based on the righteousness of another, Jesus. That's who you're standing on, through whom he's granted everything that pertains to life and godliness so you can pursue him and you will grow in him by this. All this, he wants to remind them and remind them and remind them of the gospel because we can forget. We can forget that it all comes from God. We can forget that in our new birth, we've actually, we're not slaves to sin anymore even though we can sort of woe is me and act in our life like we are. He wants to remind us of all these things. He reminds, wants to remind us of the gospel that we're established in. Um, This is one author here, Doug Moose says, we're the repetition of the truths of the gospel in both word, like we're doing now, and in acted memorials, like we're gonna do in here tonight. Please come back. Lord's Supper, baptism, baptism, are necessary components of a vital Christian experience. Jesus knew what he was doing when he gave us these ordinances. He's a good teacher. Good teachers know that we need more than just words, but we learn better when we hear and see and taste and our bodies are involved. And there's something about both Lord's Supper and baptism that help us remember and understand what the gospel does, doesn't it? we come and we make lines, at least the way we do it in here. All of us line up at the same stations to, to take the same bread and the same cup, remembering that the same Jesus died for all of our sins together. And we look across the room, hopefully with our eyes open at one another, and we're reminded that that's the same for you. We're all on equal standing and with the apostles. And that we, even though we do this as a regular reminder, the actual work only had to be done once by Jesus. And that's what it reminds us of again and again. And in baptism, we go beyond just words, but show a picture again. It's a reminder, not just of what we were saved from, guilt of our sin, but what we're saved to. So tonight, as I get the delight of baptizing baptizing my daughter, Lily, and as she goes down under the water tonight and I bring her back up and you hear me say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, Christian, you need to hear, yeah, me too. I was raised to walk in newness of life and I've died to sin because I'm in Christ and he died for my sin. And this reminder is to stir us up to be earnest. This is why I hope we don't think the ordinances, Lord's Supper and baptism are nice things if we can fit them in. But, but Jesus says, if you do anything when you gather, do these things and don't stop doing them. Baptism tonight, and as you take the bread and the cup, you're, you're following in Peter's footsteps and you are for one another, stirring up one another's remembrance of these things until the day Jesus says, move that bus. That's what Paul says. Keep doing this until the day of the Lord comes. Well, I couldn't think of a better way for us to close and pray than with this song that we sang just beforehand. So I wanna do this here. So here's this chorus again. I want us to pray. I'm gonna give you a minute to be quiet and silently personalize that prayer with the Lord. Maybe you need to start by saying, God, I am stuck in formal duty mode. Lord, would you draw me out of that here by showing me your beauty and give me a reverence and save me from empty religious practice or joyless obedience. Maybe you need to back up a step this morning and pray, Lord, formal duty would be... uh, would be saying a lot, actually. I'm not even much about formal duty. My life doesn't look in any way like a pursuit of these things. I've lost sight of it. I'm like in verse nine, so nearsighted that I've forgotten that I was cleansed from my former sins. And you need to start by saying, Lord, would you reawaken something in me, a desire for these things and a, and a love for Jesus? And pray, God, um, give me awe, give me reverence, give me humility here. Um, unveil this here and now. Take a minute, pray. Jesse's gonna lead us in this as we close. God, would you make us like the the man in Jesus' story who found a treasure in a field and understanding uh, the exceeding value of what he'd found went in his joy, sold everything else so that he could have that field and that reward. Lord, I pray that you would help each one in here understand that what we found in Jesus and through Jesus um, is that reward and that that would be so worth having and growing in for us that we would pursue growing in that like, like a, a famished person pursues food. And by that, we would grow. And by that, you'd be glorified in our life. Lord, I pray you'd save us from apathy, Lord, for some this morning who, that's where they're at. They, they would like to feel stirred in this way, but their heart just isn't there. Lord, I pray you would um, draw. You would draw them, you would call them to yourself, open their eyes like Lydia to understand and respond to this gospel invitation in the first place. God, I pray for many in here who we 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 struggle back and forth between moments of zeal um, and moments of formal duty and coasting. God, I pray that you would again, because we met this morning and tonight as we gather through the Lord's Supper and baptism, that we would be reminded again. It is worth it. Uh, And the day that's coming is gonna be beyond words. Thank you, Jesus, for the promise of your soon return. Help us to live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.